0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you deal with doubt? What do you do when someone calls you a transphobe? Are we confusing religion and morality when we get involved in the political realm and support a position that the Bible talks about? Should we be even doing that? Uh, There are several questions that have come in uh, the past week that I want to address today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. On the American Family Radio Network, normally this program is not on the American Family Radio Network because this is what we call our midweek podcast. So for those of you who have been listening on the radio, welcome to the midweek podcast. We normally have a longer form interview or we handle a lot of Q&A during this podcast. Let me get right to your questions. Uh, I got a question uh, from, it says, Hi, Frank. Uh, his name is uh, Bruno. He says, I've been a listener to your podcast for a few years now and I've been dealing with doubt lately. Do you have any book recommendations on that issue? Well, yes, Gary Habermas has several good books on this. If you go to GaryHabermas.com, Gary Habermas, H A B E R M A S.com, he has several of these books. I think one is called The Thomas Factor, another one might be called Dealing with Doubt. They're for free on his website. Gary, as you know, is the top, maybe you don't know, he is uh, probably the top scholar in the world on the resurrection. He's completing his magnum opus right now, which is over 5,000 pages. And early on uh, in his Christian life, he, he went through maybe, I think he said about a 10-year period where he, he had a lot of doubts. And so he's written on this quite a bit. So I recommend you go to garyhabermas.com and uh, avail yourself of Gary's books and many of his talks on this. There's probably some articles up there as well. Now let me just kind of give you give you my perspective on this. Uh, a lot of times uh, I go to when I go to a college campus, and by the way, this Thursday, the let's see, that'll be the fifth of October. Lord willing, we will be at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Doing, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I believe it starts at 7 p.m. It will be live streamed on our YouTube channel and our, on our app and on our Facebook page. So if you want to be a part of that, you can. If you're anywhere near Wilmington, it's open to everybody, not just students. Uh, you can go to our website, crossexamine.org, for more on that. In any event... Uh, A lot of times when I go to a college campus, I'll run into a former, so-called former Christian, and they'll say something like, well, Frank, you know, I used to be a Christian, but I lost my faith. Now, I don't mean to be unkind, but what I really want to say to them is, so? So? Are you telling me because your psychology changed that God has somehow popped out of existence? Are you telling me because your psychology changed that the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead no longer is any good? Do you realize that your psychology is not going to tell you what's true outside of your skull? The evidence will. Your psychology can change with the weather, and it probably does. Mine does. Your psychology can change with an experience you just had or with the bad pizza you had last night. Or with the fact that your favorite football team just got annihilated again, right? Your psychology can change for a lot of reasons. But your psychology won't necessarily tell you the truth of what's outside your skull. The evidence will. So you ought to concentrate on the evidence, not your psychology. In fact, when I have doubts, I start thinking about my doubts. And most of the time, my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. In other words, they're due to my fluctuating emotions. They're not due to the evidence. The evidence hasn't changed, but my psychology does change. In fact, let me give you an example of uh, people who allow psychology to overpower the evidence. There are many people, many of you probably listening right now, who are scared to death to get on an airplane. You cannot fly. You think, oh, if I got to go somewhere, I got to drive. I just can't get on a plane. You know, we could die on a plane. Well, of course, it's true. You can die on a plane. But you ought to be a lot more afraid to get in your car than you ought to be afraid of getting on an airplane because with regard to the evidence, flying is the safest way to get anywhere. Driving is much more dangerous than flying. Yet, you, if you're afraid of flying and not driving, then you're allowing your psychology to overpower the evidence. The evidence is clear. Flying is safer than driving, yet most people are much more afraid to fly than they are to drive. Don't let that be you with eternity. Don't allow your psychology to ignore or overpower the evidence. The evidence shows that Christianity is true, despite any misgivings you might have in your psychology. So just keep that in mind when it comes to dealing with doubt. And by the way, if you do have a doubt, doubts can actually be good because they drive you to get answers. If you have a doubt or a question, and look, everyone has questions. I don't care how long you've been studying God. First of all, God is the only is the only uh, perpetual novelty. You will never know enough about God. He's an infinite being. You will never have every one of your questions answered. We're finite beings. The amount of information you know is limited. The amount of information you don't know is almost limitless. <laughs> so there, there's certainly a lot of room for growth for all of us. But you still have to make a decision one way or the other. Even if you make a decision to be an agnostic, what you're saying is, um, I have enough evidence to know I don't have enough evidence, right, (laughs) that I can't make a decision. Well, that is a decision, actually. So everyone is going to come down on, at some point, based upon the knowledge you have, to draw a conclusion, whether it's you believe God exists, God doesn't exist, or you don't know You're making some kind of decision, hopefully based on evidence rather than just based on emotion, emotions which go up and down. But if you do have a doubt or you do have a question, research it, drive it into the ground. And it amazes me today that many high profile so called Christians, musicians, some pastors or former pastors say, you know, I left the faith. And they they start talking about problems or questions about the faith that they think, apparently think, nobody has ever wrestled with. Like, wow, why is there so much evil in the world if there's a good God? Or, gee, why does God judge so many people in the Old Testament? Or, you know, why does God want us to be sexually pure? Why is he not for same-sex marriage? Or, you know. I mean, there have been people writing about issues like this for quite a while. In fact, on issues like evil and, uh, and the God of the Old Testament compared to the God of the New Testament and uh, problems, so-called uh, alleged contradictions in the, in the Bible, there's been nearly 2,000 years of great minds writing on these issues. And some people today, despite the fact that they have all the answers right at their fingertips, on their phones... From the greatest minds in history, they make it seem like no one's ever thought of this question before. Oh, this is this is completely shattering to my faith. I I just can't believe how anybody could be a Christian with this kind of uh, with this kind of question out there, as if nobody's ever thought of this before. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, look around. Jesus said to whom much is given much will be required when it comes to judgment, and uh, we have been given so much, and uh, and yet we act like, oh, nobody's ever thought of this. nobody's ever had this nobody's ever had this objection before. I mean, when you think about it, that is just crazy. I'm looking for right now, here it is. <laughs> This is such a good headline. This is from the Babylon Bee. This was September 12, 2003. I actually happened to be in this story. Christianity defeated after atheist points out that they still eat shellfish and wear mixed fabrics. Here, here is the, uh, the story. The foundations of Christendom were rocked to their very core this week after a local atheist, Chaz Pittington, noted that Christians eat shellfish and wear mixed fabrics. You claim to be a Christian, and yet I notice you're wearing satin polyester a satin polyester blend shirt and eating shrimp cocktail, said Pittington to a nearby Christian who was wearing a satin polyester blend shirt and eating shrimp cocktail. Apparently, haven't read the Old Testament law. Why don't you go stone someone while you're at it? Ha! We've never heard this line of argumentation in the entire 2,000-year history of our faith, said noted Christian apologist Frank Turek. Mr. Peddington, with this simple question no one has ever thought of before, has completely dismantled my faith forever. I'm not sure what to do with my life now. Turek then got in his car and drove off to the fedora store to purchase his first fedora. Theologians at the Vatican, Oxford, and Rick Warren's two-week pastor's college are are reportedly scrambling to find an answer to the shellfish fabrics dilemma, but so far have produced no results. We're pretty sure it's over for us, said one theologian anonymously. It's been a good run, but it's time to pack it up and go home. At publishing time, Christians had fired a devastating volley back at the atheists by challenging them to explain the existence of triple bacon cheeseburgers as well as everything else. (laughs) The Babylon Bee, ladies and gentlemen, your source. For true fake news right there. Yes. (laughs) Now, obviously, that's, I I think it's funny. It's funny because it's so, it's so true that atheists and even former Christians bring up objections they think nobody's ever dealt with before. And, oh, this means Christianity's faults. It's nonsense. So do a little research uh, before you start leaving Christianity I can can almost guarantee you that any question or or objection you have thought of, some great mind has thought of as well and addressed it adequately if you only take the time to look for it. So that's how you deal with doubt. You drive it into the ground. You keep searching for answers. They are out there. Uh, By the way, I've mentioned this book several times on this program before. Uh, You ought to get the book written by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, it used to be called When Critics Ask. Now it's called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. And uh, that book has more answers in it, particularly regarding, uh, with uh, regard to the Bible than probably any other book out there. So I highly recommend you get that book. Okay, let's see. Uh, Zach Smith writes in and says, uh, Thank you for uh, heeding the call of God on your life by speaking the truth on your show and around the country. Thank you, Zach. He says, I have a question about your take on legislating morality. And he writes, if it's right for us to have our religious literature, traditions, and historical figures in the public places, why is it wrong to allow other religions to do the same in a free country? Well, it's not necessarily wrong. I mean... You could have displays of other religious religions in a free country. It's not necessarily wrong to do that. We, in our country, though, have not only a tradition, but our founding was built on theism. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it goes on in the Declaration of Independence to talk about divine providence, that there is a God, a being out there. Now, this God is not identified explicitly as the Christian God, although I think in the Constitution it might say uh, in the year of our Lord. So I'd have to look that up. It says somewhere in our founding document. So, I mean, they're implying that's the Christian God, but you don't need to be a Christian to be an American. You don't, you don't need to believe in any God to be an American. Uh, but our founding was built on Judeo-Christian theism, that there is a God beyond the world who created the world and sustains the world, and he gives us objective moral rights, that these unalienable rights come from the creator. So we tend to favor that in our nation, particularly in our monuments, particularly in our history, particularly in uh, how we comport ourselves. We believe in a theistic Judeo-Christian God, but it's not unconstitutional for uh, uh, that to be displayed because you're not establishing a religion by having uh, a quotation or a statue or a citation of some uh, religious book. I mean, by the way, religious figure, if you go in to the House of Representatives, uh, you'll see Moses. (laughs) His face is carved into the, the wall there in the House of Representatives. In fact, he's staring right at the speaker when the speaker is looking out Uh, The Congress, he's looking or she's looking right at Moses staring at him or her, at the Speaker of the House. And there's all sorts of different uh, displays, religious displays in our country, particularly in our capital. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's not an establishment of religion to acknowledge religion. It's not an establishment of a church to acknowledge uh, the role that religion has played in our founding and the, relig- and the role that religion even plays in our laws. Even though when we put a law in place, we're not legislating religion, we're legislating morality. You see, religion has to do with our duty to God. Morality has more to do with our duty to one another. And when we put laws in place, we're not telling people where, when, how, or if to worship. That would be legislating religion. But we are telling people how to treat one another, and that's legislating morality, and everyone's trying to legislate morality. No matter whether you're liberal or conservative, left or right, you're trying to impose a moral position on people. Last night uh, in our uh, TV program, which we streamed, uh, it's, uh, w- we did uh, Correct Not Politically Correct about transgenderism and legislating morality. You can still go to our YouTube channel and click on live and see it. It's got about six or 7,000 views here in only 24 hours, so people have been watching it. And uh, in there, uh, we were talking about that all laws legislate morality and that the left is trying to legislate morality. For example, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, back uh, in, uh, let's see, it was March 30th, 2022, uh, came out and basically said, and we have this. In the video from last night, his Department of of, uh, Health and Human Services came out and essentially said that if you have a child who thinks he or she is the opposite gender, if you don't affirm that child in that gender, we, the federal government, may come take that child from you. That's a moral position. That's the government saying that they have a moral right to take your child from you if you don't affirm that child in their in their thought, in their gender identity rather than their biological identity. That's a moral position. Abortion is a moral position, regardless of what side you're on. I mean, it's obvious that a pro-life position wants to impose continued pregnancy on the mother because they think the child has a right to life. That's a moral right to life. But the pro-abortion side thinks a woman has a moral right to a dead baby, essentially, because they think a woman has a moral right to do what she wants with her own body. Now, generally she does, but not if she kills somebody else in the process. And what they're doing is they're imposing death on the baby whenever abortion is chosen. They also don't give any rights to the child. They don't give any rights to the father. They don't give any rights to the state. They say the woman gets to decide who lives and dies, as if the woman has a moral right to kill her unborn child. That's a moral position that they want to put into law. So all laws legislate morality. The only question is whose morality? I don't want to legislate my morality. I don't want to legislate your morality. I want to legislate the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. The one the Apostle Paul said, the Gentiles and all of the law have the law written on their hearts. Everybody intuitively knows right and wrong on the basics. Whether you have a Bible or not, whether you believe in God or not, you know it. You can only justify it if God exists, but you know it even if you're an atheist. Just Just like you can know what a speed limit sign says and obey the speed limit while denying there's a traffic authority. You can know what it says and obey it and deny anybody put the sign up, but that sign wouldn't be there unless there was a traffic authority. Similarly, you can know, say, murder's wrong and not murder and deny there's a God, but murder wouldn't be objectively wrong unless there was a God. But again, don't confuse religion and morality. They're two different things. They are related, obviously. Obviously, the Bible says thou shalt not murder, and the moral law says the same thing. But you don't need the Bible to know that. So, we're not legislating religion, we are legislating morality. The second part of Zach's question says this. Do you think we should ban things that don't interfere with individual rights like gay marriage? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think gay marriage is a right? Where did that come from? Regardless of religion, natural law doesn't recognize gay marriage as a right. When I say natural law, the natural design of the body, the idea that we know certain things are right and wrong regardless of whether we have a Bible or any other kind of religious writing. We know it just based on reality that men were made for women, women were made for men, and the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize that man-woman relationship over every other relationship. That's not my morality. That's not your morality. That just happens to be the morality. So if there's no God, there are no rights. There's no gay marriage. There's no right to same-sex marriage, and there's no right to natural marriage. There's no right to abortion and there's no right to life unless there's a God. There's no such thing as trans rights unless there's a God. And if there is a God, I would still argue there's no such thing as trans rights because you are completely mutilating or you are mutilating what God has created. And we know this intuitively that we're designed, that we're created. So Either way, whether God exists or not, there are no such thing as trans rights in the sense you have the right to remove perfectly healthy sex organs, or that you have the right to kill a child in the womb, or you have the right to marry somebody of the same sex. No, those, those have never been rights in a theistic world. Rights come from God. They don't come from governments. Then Zach goes on to say, do you think public schools should be Christian institutions? I think we should vote to allow as much freedom as possible while protecting the Bill of Rights. Then we can be Christians and others can be whatever they want. I believe in religious freedom. I'm with you on that, Zach. It would be fair to make kids, or he said, it would be fair. Would it be fair? It would be fair to make kids study the Quran and the Torah in addition to the Bible if religion is going to be part of public education. Actually, I think it would be wise to have kids read the major religious revelations in a comparative religions course or a literature course or a history course or a worldview course. They ought to learn about religion, the major religions of the world. Why shouldn't they learn about them? You want to be a well-rounded citizen? You should know what Muslims generally believe, what Jews believe, what Christians believe, what Hindus believe, what Buddhists believe. I mean, generally, you can't go into a lot of detail, but you should know these things. In fact, think about this. What one question has more implications on life than any other question? How we live life. What one question? Here's the question. Does God exist? That question has more implications on life, or at least it should, than virtually any other question you can imagine. Because if God exists then he has some sort of plan for us or some sort of moral program or some sort of purpose for us, and therefore we should live in accordance with that. If God doesn't exist, then there is no objective meaning, morality, or purpose to life, and you could live however you want. And yet, our public institution or our public education system has decided Not only to not address that question, but actually has decided to assume the answer to that question is no, that there is no God. Is it any wonder why our public schools continually slide into virtual anarchy and that kids can't read, write, or do arithmetic, but they can know what their pronouns are? They can know what their gender identity is. They can know how to put a condom on. Yeah, when you live as if there is no God, it's not that you'll believe nothing, it's that you will believe anything. So, I think as a public institution, our school system should be educating kids on what the truth is regarding, or at least address the question, does God exist? Lay the arguments out there. Does he exist? Does he not exist? And then allow kids to make up their own minds. Fairly lay out the arguments. That's not forcing them to be part of a national church. That would just be there to show them, here are some things to consider when you address the most consequential, consequential question you could possibly address does god exist And of course the second question is if he does exist what does he said how does he want us to live those are important questions tragically our public school system has become atheistic rather than at least open to addressing the question so good question zach a lot more could be said on that but i want to move on to another question Uh, And this comes from a question that came in last night on the feed on the YouTube event we did called Correct Not Politically Correct about transgenderism and legislating morality. Someone said, I oppose Big Pharma's ambition to mutilate and sterilize mentally and emotionally vulnerable people. Last night, we talked about how Big Pharma is making millions on the whole transgender movement because, you know, nobody ever actually completely transitions even if you have the so-called surgery first of all you can't bio you can't change your biology it's impossible but people who try and orient their bodies in such a way to make them at least look like the opposite sex can do so they try and do so through surgery but then they have to continually take hormones the rest of their lives nobody ever completely transitions Because you have to continually take hormones the rest of your life to try and force your body to go in a direction it was not designed to go. And Big Pharma loves this. They continually want people to be on these cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. So, the question is, I oppose Big Pharma's ambition to mutilate and sterilize mentally and emotionally vulnerable people, yet I'm called transphobic. What's the best way to uh, combat this unfalsifiable smear? Well, first of all, (laughs) I don't know about unfalsifiable. Uh, you got to start asking questions. What do you mean by transphobic? What does that mean? It's kind of like when somebody calls you a bigot. You ought to say, well, I'm not a bigot. You ought to say, what do you mean by bigotry? Because as soon as they begin to define it, they're going to be in trouble. If they say, well, bigotry, you, you just... You just hate gay people or whatever they say. What do you mean by hate? Does disagreement always mean hate? Because if it does, you're disagreeing with me right now. Do you hate me? No, disagreement doesn't always mean hate. In fact, that's a lie of Satan to say that disagreement means hate. Disagreement is disagreement. You should use reasons to try and find common ground. And if you can't, okay, you'll agree to disagree, but it doesn't mean hate. In fact, when somebody calls you transphobic, you might say, as I said, what do you mean by that? And then say, what am I doing that's wrong? And by what standard are you claiming that's wrong? Where are you getting this standard from? And can you disagree with someone and still love them? Do you have loved ones in your life that you disagree with on certain issues? Who's going to say no? (laughs) Of course. And love means you're seeking what's best for the other person. When you look at the data, when you look at the evidence, you realize that transgenderism rarely helps anybody. The suicide rate is higher after the surgery than before. Some Harvard researchers put together uh, some data and discovered that people who have gender dysphoria have a suicide rate 19 times higher than the general public. But then another long-term study of trans people, people that actually did the surgery, found that 10 years after they had the surgery, their suicide rate is 19 times higher than the general public. The surgery appeared to make it worse, not better. And so how are you helping people by trying to give them a solution that makes the problem worse in most cases than better? That's not phobic. That's just telling the truth. And by the way, phobic is supposed to be some sort of irrational fear, Maybe it's it's a rational fear. Maybe because whatever they're doing to their bodies usually doesn't turn out well. You ought to be afraid of that. Of course, you can ask, are you a Christian phobe? Are you a biology phobe? Are you a natural law phobe? Are you a truth phobe? That would be stupid to ask those questions, but that's essentially what they're doing to you. They're just using a different term. They're calling you transphobe. Well, you could easily say, are you a, are you a god-phobe? Are you a biology-phobe? I mean, if you're just using names here. It's better to have a conversation, but you get the ridiculous, ridiculousness of it when you start, if you start calling them names, too. The point here is, is that instead of trying to change reality to fit our feelings, We should try and change our feelings to fit reality. Or let me put it another way. Instead of trying to change reality to fit what we want to do, we have to act in such a way that we change our behavior to fit reality. Because you can't change reality, friends. You can change your behavior. You can work on changing your desires. But you can't change reality. You can't change your biology. You can't change your sex. It's impossible. Another question. What are your thoughts about Andy Stanley in recent times on these kinds of issues? Well, I've had some long conversations with my friend Andy Stanley about this. And frankly, he's going down the wrong road. Now, my friend uh, Alan Schliemann just went to a conference that Andy held this past weekend down there at North Point. And I was not at the conference, but Alan was there. And today, uh, Sean McDowell is releasing an interview with uh, Alan because he went to this conference. And I haven't seen it yet, so I'll wait till I watch it, and then maybe we'll talk about this at a future time. But it's dropping on Sean McDowell's YouTube channel today. So if you want to see Sean interviewing Alan about what happened at this, uh, at this conference for parents of LGBTQ children at North Point this past weekend, go over to Sean's, uh, Sean's YouTube channel and see it. I think it's dropping any, any minute now. I haven't seen it myself. Sean sent me the link last night, but I'll, I'll wait to comment further until I see that. Okay, a uh, final question says, a meeting, oh, by the way, before we get to this final question, in order to address many of these delicate issues in our culture today and not be deceived by them, you've got to be able to think well and know how to ask the right questions and know how to identify false statements. Logic is absolutely essential at a time like this. And unfortunately, we don't teach logic in public schools. Instead of teaching kids how to think, we're teaching them what to feel. And that's why you want to get your kid enrolled in Train Your Brain. It's only open in the premium version till October 9th. So right now it's October 3rd. You just got a few more days to sign your middle school slash junior higher up for train your brain in the premium version. The rest of you, I don't care how old you are, if you've never had a course in logic, you need to take this course. Even though it's written for sixth to eighth graders, adults can take the self-paced course and should. Uh, So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you will see it there. Shanda Fulbright is the primary teacher, but I'm also involved. We co-wrote the logic course together called Train Your Brain, and it deals with a lot of these issues As examples in uh, this course on how to think clearly. It's nothing, very few things are more important than thinking clearly. So check that out. And then later this month, I'm going to be your instructor for a verse by verse exposition, exposition of the great book of Galatians, 13 one hour video sessions on this. And if you take the premium version, I will be, along with John Ferrer, Dr. John Ferrer, I will be your primary instructor during the Zoom sessions that we will have uh, during the course. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and take a course about one of the greatest books in the Bible. Probably the first book Paul ever wrote, and it deals directly with the gospel and faith and works and even although it it preempted all this, the idea that another gospel could come in, i.e. something like progressive Christianity. Paul slaps that down hard in the book of Galatians. So you want to be a part of that class, check it out. All right, final question. Here it is. I'm meeting with a pastor at my church this week over them using gay Christian... He has that in quotes. And then parenting and LGBTQ Christian teen terminology. What would you focus on in that conversation? Well, I would ask a lot of questions. What do you mean by gay Christian? Why do you think people ought to identify themselves that way? Because our identity is in Jesus, it's not in any part of our sin nature. I mean, we would never say I'm an adulterous Christian. We would never say, I'm a fornicating Christian. We would never say, I'm a thieving Christian. We would never put a, 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 a sin behavior in front of our, our identity as a Christian. We would just say we're Christians. We all struggle with sin in some way. But we shouldn't take that sin and put it as part of our identity. And so... I don't know what this parenting and LGBTQ Christian teen terminology is all about, but it sounds like people are assuming the identity that the world wants them to take. And I would resist that. I would say that's not biblical. Nowhere in the scriptures is it going to say that some Christian is identified by the sin in which they engage or the desire to sin in which they engage. No one would say I'm an angry Christian or an alcoholic Christian or a promiscuous Christian, we would say that shouldn't be part of your identity. And it was Sam Albury who said, who, as you know, is same-sex attracted, but celibate, says don't don't identify yourself by any part of your sin nature. I think that's a good good advice. In fact, Christianity is the only worldview where you don't achieve your identity you receive your identity. There's no behavior for the Christian that should modify his, his or her identity. Christ has secured your identity in what he did on the cross, not what you do. It's what he did. So you don't achieve it. You just receive it. And if you have to achieve your identity, first of all, all the pressure's on you, and there's always somebody that can do it better. Secondly, whatever you put your identity in that isn't just Christ can be fleeting. For example, if you put your identity in your gender identity or, say, your sexual preference, what happens when you're no longer sexually preferred? Or you can, or you're, uh, you're no longer, you no longer can perform sexually? I mean, what then? You no longer have an identity? Or what if you put your identity in your bank account and then you lose your, your fortune? Or you put your identity in your vocation and you lose your job? Or you put your identity in another person and God forbid that person dies or leaves you? You no longer have an identity? That would be traum- traumatic to the point that, oh, who am I anymore? No, your identity is in not, what, it's not in what you do. It's not in what you want to do. It's what in Christ did. And that's secure. You can never lose that. You can lose your health. You can lose your wealth. You can lose your job. You can lose your spouse. You can lose your ability to perform sexually. You can lose all these things. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. He's our identity. By the way, we're going to be talking more about this at the Steadfast Conference next weekend in Rock Hill, South Carolina, that's the one put on by Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu. I will be there. Jay Richards will be there. Gary Habermas will be there. You Ross, Fuz Rana. Many, many others. Uh hope any if you're anywhere near Charlotte, North Carolina, the weekend of let's see, that's probably the 13th and 14th. It is. The 13th and 14th of October. It's at First Baptist Rock Hill. We got probably about a thousand people coming, maybe more. It's a great apologetics conference, 29th annual, put on by SES. Also, I'll be speaking the next day in the morning and evening service at uh, at First Baptist Rock Hill, South Carolina. So check all that out on our website, CrossExamined.org. Click on Frank Turek calendar. You're, you'll see it there. So I hope to see you there. Also, don't forget, I'll be at UNC Wilmington, Lord willing, this Thursday, October 5th. And then at Ohio State, the Ohio State University, with my friend Eric Chabot, who heads the Rocio Christi group there. Go there just about every year. Eric does a great job. Uh, that'll be the 19th of October. And then the following week, we're going to be out at a couple of colleges in Missouri and then at Auburn University on the 26th of October. Uh, the 26th of October. Let's see. We're going to be at Northwest Missouri State on the 23rd and then Missouri Western University on the 24th. Then we head out to Auburn on the 26th. And then on, let's see, where are we going to be? Oh, going to be at University of Cincinnati on the 2nd of November. And I'm getting ahead of myself because I forgot October 10th. That's next week. I'm going to be down just south of Atlanta in Noonan at First Baptist Church. Uh, Noonan, I believe that is. Yeah, First Baptist Church, the Grounded series. I'm going to be talking about Correct, Not Politically Correct. It's a Tuesday night, 7 p.m., uh, October 10th. So if you're anywhere near Atlanta, I hope to see you there. All the details on our website. Check us out there. And Lord willing, I will see you here. Uh, This coming weekend, we're going to have Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer on their brand new book, Critical Dilemma, about critical theory. See you then.